From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Marissa Polowitz, and today we're continuing in our exploration of the rapidly changing landscape at the intersection of technology and privacy. This week, we will focus on the world of healthcare. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which is the federal legislation governing protected health information, or PHI. But the world of patient privacy and healthcare data spans far beyond what happens within the four walls of our medical providers. And I'm so honored to have Professor Stacy Tovino here with us to talk more about this. By day, Professor Tovino teaches at University of Oklahoma College of Law, but she's not just any law professor. Professor Tovino is a leading expert in health law, bioethics, and the medical humanities, with particular expertise in the civil, regulatory, operational, and financial aspects of health law. Her research and scholarship focuses on patient privacy and health information confidentiality, COVID-19 in the law, mental health law, and health technology and the law. Her prolific scholarship includes Patient Privacy, Problems, Perspectives, and Opportunities, A Timely Right to Privacy, Examining the Sufficiency or Insufficiency of Enforcement Mechanisms for Privacy and Security Violations in the Context of Protected Health Information, and her most recent article, Not So Private, Discussing De-Identification and Re-Identification of Patient Data and the Federal and State Laws that Apply to Health Data. Professor Tovino is a highly coveted speaker on the local, national, and international levels. She has been invited to guest lecture and present papers on a range of health law, bioethics, and medical humanities topics at schools of law, medicine, nursing, public health, pharmacy, life sciences, health sciences, and public policy, as well as undergraduate and graduate departments of neuroscience, biology, psychology, sociology, philosophy, and humanities around the world. I cannot believe that we are lucky enough to have gotten her here on the pod. Hi, Stacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I have a bunch of questions for you today, but I think that it would be really interested to get started with hearing a little bit about why you decided that it was an interesting field or an interesting question to delve into data privacy and even more specifically patient and healthcare data privacy. You know, I think it was a timing issue. I was in law school between 1994 and 1997 at the University of Houston Law Center in Houston, Texas, which is home to the Texas Medical Center, which is like the world's largest grouping of hospitals and medical schools in one area. And um, in August of 1996, so the August that I was starting my third year of law school, President Clinton signed HIPAA into law. And then shortly thereafter, and about three years later, the first proposed HIPAA privacy rule was promulgated by the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. 
And at that time I was a second year attorney. And so right in the beginning of my practice, we had this massive piece of legislation signed into law. We had proposed and final privacy and security and later breach notification rules coming out. And it just happened that I was in the right place, which is Houston's Texas Medical Center, where all those medical schools and hospitals needed to comply with HIPAA. And I was working at Vincent Elkins, the law firm that was right there. And I was the only one free since I was a new attorney. So the partner I work for kind of charged me with becoming a, an expert in HIPAA privacy, HIPAA security, and as we know much later, HIPAA breach notification. And so my practice and now my teaching centers around patient privacy and health information confidentiality issues. Yeah, I mean, timing really can be everything. That's really interesting. Right. Um, what a lucky space to be in, especially because it's becoming such a news dominating issue. Um, privacy in general, but especially health privacy. So why is health data privacy so important? Oh, it's so important generally. And then I would say it's so important specifically. But in general, we obviously want patients, whenever they are concerned about a physical or a mental health condition, to seek diagnosis and treatment from their healthcare providers. Um, and many um, patients have no problem doing that. But when we're talking about patients who have mental health conditions or patients maybe who um, need reproductive services or patients who are worried that they might have a genetic condition and those patients fear either stigma or they fear discrimination or they fear something else. Um, one way we can encourage them to seek diagnosis and treatment is to promise them that any medical records that are created about them and anything they might say to the doctor in the clinic will be kept confidential and that their privacy will be respected. Um, but obviously, if that information goes out, that can have a chilling effect on patients seeking diagnosis and treatment. So that's kind of the general um, response. And I will just say, you know, ever since I've been in this, you see particular topics, whether it's mental health and psychotherapy notes, or now, um, obviously, abortion records um, becoming um, the center of national debate. And um, I would just say that you know, in general, um, we have to respect people's privacy and confidentiality. They're not gonna wanna get diagnosis. They're not gonna wanna get treatment. And in addition, they could be discriminated against in the health insurance, the life insurance, the disability insurance context if this information gets out. Yeah, you're speaking right to my, my specific passions. I love that you're talking about this, especially when we're seeing what's going on and which started in Texas, but is really cascading broadly across the country. You mentioned HIPAA, and I think all of our listeners have heard of HIPAA, which is the predominant privacy regulation on the federal level that pertains to health information. Um, and it's the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. And while there's many other um, acts that pertain to more narrow areas of data privacy, um, HIPAA really didn't start specifically as just a data privacy or general privacy act that was predominantly about the portability of patient records. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was that the original intent of HIPAA was to prevent health plans from refusing coverage to folks in, um, in poor health and to make it easier for those that change their jobs or lose their jobs to maintain adequate coverage. I'm not sure the demographics of our listeners, but I know that some of them may not be aware that prior to HIPAA, uh, it was a lot more difficult to get your health records transferred to a new provider or insurance carrier. And it actually cost money for us to get our health records. We needed to get them printed, or I even remember the days of them burning them to a CD to like hand to me at the doctor's office. Um, so I would love if you could kind of dive a little bit into the evolution of HIPAA and high tech and, and then kind of into the more recent developments and how it's really become the only federal level patient privacy regulation. 
Oh, very good question. So actually the title of the statute is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act or HIPAA. And it was signed into law by President Clinton on August 21, 1996. And I always think of just because it came out when I was um, a second, almost a third year law student, I always think of it as a relatively new statute, but it is now 2022. Um, so this statute is actually quite old. But again, the title is Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And so one of the primary thrusts behind HIPAA was to make health insurance portable. And so to understand this, um, imagine in the old days, you were working at one employer, say on the West Coast, but your family was on the East Coast. Maybe you're from New York or New Jersey or something like that. And so you'd like to move back to the East Coast. But while you're at your employer on the West Coast, you might develop a health condition, whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure, or you might have a cardiac problem that resulted in a cardiac surgery. Okay. If in the old days you moved to a new employer on the East Coast, so you could be close to your family, what that new employer would do is impose a pre existing condition exclusion, which means they would cover you, say, if you had a baby at your new employer, but they would not cover you for, say, that diabetes or the high blood pressure or the cardiac problem that you had at your old employer. And so the result is that many very good employees that wanted to move up in their careers or wanted to move for geographic or other reasons, they couldn't. It was what we called job lock because they would have had developed an expensive condition that we'll call a pre-existing condition, and then their new insurer wouldn't cover it. And President Clinton didn't like that. And so in the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, he wanted to make health insurance portable meaning almost like you could bring your old insurance with you to your new job. And it's not exactly that, but HIPAA limits the ability of group health plans to impose pre-existing condition exclusions on people um, who are starting a new job or entering a new group. And so I would say that's kind of the beginning of it. HIPAA is a huge statute and it does many things that are actually unrelated to patient privacy and health information confidentiality. Not only does it do, or does it talk about insurance portability, but for those um, people who are experts in healthcare fraud and abuse, it does a lot in the healthcare fraud and abuse context. Now there was a tiny section of HIPAA and it was tiny. It's only four sections. So HIPAA has several titles and in title two, and then in subtitle F of Title II, there is something called the Administrative Simplification Provisions. And there were only four short provisions in there. And there were sections 261, 262, 263, and 264. And 264 was a relevant section, meaning that was like the one section or the one provision in HIPAA that actually related to patient privacy and health information confidentiality. And all that tiny provision said is that within a certain number of months of the date of enactment of HIPAA, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services was to issue recommendations to Congress regarding how Congress should protect patient privacy and health information confidentiality at the federal level through a federal statute. And then the provision went on to say that if Congress did not enact privacy legislation within three years of the date of enactment of HIPAA, then the Federal Department of Health and Human Services would incur the regulatory obligation to promulgate a privacy regulation, meaning an administrative regulation. And that's exactly what happened. Congress never passed privacy legislation at the federal level within that three-year deadline. So the obligation fell to a federal agency, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, to uh, promulgate a privacy regulation. And so HHS issued um, a proposed privacy regulation in November of 1999 a final privacy regulation in December of 2000, and then proposed modifications to that privacy rule in March of 2002, 
and then final modifications to that final privacy rule in August of 2002. And so I say by about August of 2002, so if you can believe this almost, not quite, but almost 20 years ago, we had what we thought was the final HIPAA privacy rule. And then many years later, when President Obama came into office, you may remember that we were in a national or worldwide recession. And so he signed into law something called the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA. And ARA contained a particular act called the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, or HITECH. And HITECH actually directed the secretary of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services to amend certain provisions within the HIPAA privacy rule and to adopt certain breach notification provisions. So long story short, after about a seven year hiatus or so, then we had new proposed and new final rules amending the HIPAA privacy rule. And today we just call that the HIPAA privacy rule or many people just call it the privacy rule. But you're right, it's generally our one federal regulation that is designed to protect patient privacy and health information confidentiality for patients who interact with health industry participants. I have to say, as somebody that's worked in healthcare for a really long time, it's mortifying that I consistently get health information or health insurance wrong in HIPAA. And I do it repeatedly. It's not, this is not the first time. So no, but you, and I'm glad you point, but everyone does that. And the only reason I emphasize it is because everyone says, oh, it's the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. And then they go on to say, so the purpose of HIPAA must have meant to make information portable, but actually the purpose of HIPAA was to make insurance portable and to prevent people from being locked into their old jobs. But that's, I, I, I've even seen faculty scholars do that, uh, folks who are my age do that. So it's very understandable. And one of the reasons why is that reporters both spell HIPAA incorrectly, they spell it with two Ps, but reporters say it's the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. And so it, it causes the lay public and even law students and even some lawyers to spell it incorrectly or to understand it incorrectly. You mentioned um, HHS, and I'm really curious because so a lot of these other privacy acts fall under, you know, the, the FCC or the FEC, like there's very different organizations that manage them. It makes sense that a health related Act would fall under HHS, but why OCR? Yep, so I would just say um, the reason we started with HHS is that in the original HIPAA statute, Congress did direct the Federal Department of Health and Human Services to promulgate privacy regulations if Congress didn't pass privacy legislation. So that's kind of how HHS got pulled into it. And as you know, there are many like sub offices or departments within HHS. It's a very, very large federal agency. Um, but I would just say, yes, you are correct. It's the Office for Civil Rights or the OCR within HHS that was charged with both writing or authoring these regulations as well as enforcing it. And, and I think that is the right office, right? Because I actually think of patient privacy or privacy in general as almost a civil right. So I do think it's the right office. But for those people who are interested in health law, you know there are many other offices and centers within HHS, like the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services or the National Institutes of Health or the Food and Drug Administration. Um, but those centers or offices or administrations have ever other focuses. I'd love to stick a pin in this um, civil rights issue pertaining to, to data um, and data privacy. So we're gonna come back to that. But first I wanna get a little bit more into HIPAA. So HIPAA is what people call the federal floor of requirement, meaning that states are welcome to go above and beyond the requirements of HIPAA and legislating when it comes to healthcare data or for our listeners that don't know the PHI, PII abbreviations, um, protected health information or personally identifiable information. Um, what are we what are we seeing happen in states that are there may be going 
above and beyond what HIPAA has done? And then on the flip side, where are we seeing states fall short on that front? Very good question. So you're absolutely right. HIPAA contains what I call a set of preemption provisions. And basically what these provisions say is that HIPAA um, preempts contrary state laws. But there's an exception to that preemption provisions for state laws that are more stringent than the HIPAA privacy rule, meaning state laws that provide um, better protections for patients in terms of their privacy and better protections for patients in terms of health information confidentiality. And so states are absolutely free to enact more stringent privacy regulations. Um, states also are free to adopt consumer data or other data privacy protections or information confidentiality protections to the extent they are not contrary to HIPAA. And so I would just say, yes, a lot of states um, have done that. And that is where we're seeing a lot of activity right now. Now, it's interesting to me because a lot of states point to the, or a lot of people point to the California Consumer Privacy Act or the CCPA, which was signed into law in 2018 and became initially effective in, on January 1, 2020 as the first state to do this. But if you actually go back between the, the time that HIPAA was signed into law, which was 1996, and the CPA, which was 2018, there actually were other states that were making movement in this area. So we've mentioned Texas already. I went to law school in Texas. I'm licensed to practice law in Texas. I went to graduate school in Texas. But in Texas, um, in 2001, so about five years after HIPAA was signed into law, um, and about one year before the final HIPAA privacy rule first came about, the Texas legislature enacted something called the Texas Medical Records Privacy Act. And this piece of legislation recognized that the HIPAA privacy rule really only regulated certain health industry participants, namely health plans, healthcare clearinghouses, and not even all, but only certain healthcare providers, meaning those that transmit health information in electronic form in connection with certain standard transactions. So in 2001, the Texas legislature enacted something called the Texas Medical Records Privacy Act. And what it does is it says, if you're a HIPAA covered entity, then you comply with HIPAA. But if you fall out of being a HIPAA covered entity, because you don't meet the definition of being a health plan, a healthcare clearinghouse, or one of those certain healthcare providers, then you are regulated by us. And so it's what I call a state version of HIPAA that applies to basically anyone who collects, obtains, maintains, or receives health information even if they don't meet the definition of a HIPAA covered entity. So I'd say that the first thing that some states like Texas are doing and have done for almost 20-ish years or over 20 years now is adopt HIPAA-like provisions that apply to non-HIPAA covered entities to fill that gap there. And then of course, more recently, people know about the California Consumer Privacy Act. We obviously have the Virginia Consumer Data Protection Act. Um, we obviously have the um, Colorado Privacy Act. And we obviously most recently um, last month have the Utah Consumer Privacy Act. And what all of these privacy acts do is they say, if you're a HIPAA covered entity, then you have to comply with HIPAA and this law doesn't apply. But if you're not a HIPAA covered entity, and you meet the definition of a business, like you do business in the state, or you do produce products or services that target residents of our state, and those states, again, would be California, Virginia, Colorado, and Utah, then you have to give um, consumers in the state certain rights with respect to their personal data or their personal, health, uh, their personal information. And if people aren't given those rights, or if their information is used or disclosed inappropriately, um, the attorney general in those states has enforcement ability. 
But to just kind of sum up my answer to your question, um, I would say we have many, not many, but we have Texas, we have California, um, we have Virginia, we have Colorado, and we have Utah making substantial um, movement in the area of consumer data protection. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned all of these states because um, we're seeing what is the what is being called the patchwork privacy laws of the states because we don't have a federal consumer privacy um, regulation um, across the board. I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit more about the HIPAA carve out in all of these statutes or all these um, pieces of legislation, which for our listeners, um, just a little bit of background, a lot of these states are passing privacy legislation and they exempt entities that are governed by HIPAA from having to adhere to the, the new legislation um, as it pertains to data because they're covered by HIPAA. But I'm I'm a little bit unsure or unclear as to why you couldn't just add in additional layers of protection for PHI and PII under these new pieces of legislation. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I would say some of these um, statutes do it in different ways. Some of them exempt HIPAA covered entities. So if you're a health plan, healthcare clearinghouse, or one of those certain healthcare providers that has to comply with HIPAA, you're not what we call a regulated business. And then some of them do it slightly differently, which is they say, if a piece of information falls within the definition of protected health information or PHI under HIPAA, then that is not a piece of information that falls into protection by state law as a result of being personal data or personal identifying information or something like that. But I would say there's a couple reasons here. Some legislators thought that, you know, HIPAA does, some people think that HIPAA does a pretty good job of protecting um, patient privacy and health information confidentiality in the healthcare context. And so they didn't want to enact a duplicative kind of legislative scheme where people would have to be doing constant preemption analyses. And in a way that does make sense, meaning HIPAA covered entities have for two decades almost now, um, been very familiar with how to protect privacy and health information confidentiality and not violate the privacy rule and to cause them to have to figure out you know which provision within utah or virginia or colorado or the texas law or the california law um, survives preemption would be a pain in the butt um, so i think that's one of the reasons that they did it um, on the flip side though i think you're absolutely right because some of these state laws go um, further than HIPAA. So just for example, HIPAA largely only regulates the use and disclosure of protected health information that is already collected, but HIPAA does not regulate the collection of information to begin with. And many of these state laws do protect and or regulate the initial collection of information. And so I think you were going there with your question, but wouldn't it be nice if HIPAA also regulated the collection of information and required businesses to tell consumers when their information is being collected and for what purpose and how it's being maintained and to give people the uh, opportunity to opt out of that collection, wouldn't that be nice? And if these state laws did not um, not apply to HIPAA covered entities and not, not apply to protected health information, we could have added that right onto there, but we didn't as a result. Yeah, this actually gets right into my next question, which is where does HIPAA fail? 
Oh my goodness. So, I mean, there are so many scholars who have written so many wonderful articles about the problems associated with HIPAA. Um, obviously, Nicholas Terry at Indiana University, Robert H. McKinney School of Law, Sharona Hoffman. I mean, there are so many wonderful privacy and confidentiality scholars that have been writing about this for about two decades. Um, but some of the things that they have pointed out and some of the things that I have mentioned in my own scholarship, one, the definition of covered entity is simply too narrow. So one more time, HIPAA only regulates health plans, healthcare clearinghouses, and not even all, but only certain healthcare providers, namely those healthcare providers who take insurance and bill insurance electronically. So for example, if you have a mental healthcare provider, or if you have any healthcare provider that for whatever reason doesn't take insurance, for example, I just spent 10 years on faculty at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law in um, the heart of Las Vegas, Nevada. And because of our entertainment industry, we have many plastic surgeons there. Um, they cater to folks in the entertainment business who would like cosmetic or elective plastic surgery. And because insurance doesn't cover cosmetic or elective plastic surgery, um, their businesses are entirely cash-based businesses, which means they do not have to comply with the head privacy rule. So first of all, we have many doctors who don't have to comply with the privacy rule because the privacy rule only applies to certain doctors in certain hospitals, those that take insurance and bill insurance electronically. And then I would just say, in addition, there are many um, mobile applications and forms of software, and I'll just say other devices and programs and services that obtain health information from patients that is individually identifiable that does not meet the definition of a health plan, a healthcare clearinghouse, or a healthcare provider. For example, on my smartphone, I have downloaded dozens of apps in an attempt to get healthy, and I enter all sorts of information into these applications. And those applications either do not meet the definition of a healthcare provider, or if they do, those applications are not billing insurance um, in relation to me or any other consumer who's entering into uh, or submitting information to that app. So I would say one of the first problems with HIPAA is that the application um, only to covered entities and their business associates is simply too narrow. And then I'd say a second limitation is that HIPAA only protects information that falls within the definition of protected health information or PHI. And many people think, oh, that's a very broad definition, um, but it's actually quite limited, meaning it's limited to information that is reasonably believed to be identifiable. Okay, and so a lot of people say, oh, this piece of information or that piece of information is not protected and it doesn't meet the definition of protected health information because I don't think it reasonably could lead to the identification of that individual. So then businesses will make the um, determination that the information is not protected and then they will use and disclose that information and then the information will be subsequently re-identified. So I'd say we need a more robust definition of protected health information and we need a strengthened de-identification safe harbor. Another limitation of HIPAA, as many people know, is that it does not contain a private right of action for patients whose privacy is violated or whose health information confidentiality is breached. So say, for example, you're a patient, you are seeing a HIPAA-covered doctor, and that HIPAA-covered doctor actually has protected health information about you. If that doctor inappropriately uses or discloses that health information and violates HIPAA, the federal government can impose civil monetary penalties or enter into a resolution agreement with the covered entity um, as a result of that violation. But so far, we don't have a current regulation in effect that would give the patient any cut of those penalties. 
In addition, there is technically no private right of action. So a patient can't file a lawsuit and list as one of the counts a violation of say 45 CFR 164.501A. Now they can recouch it in terms of a state tort violation or something like that, but um, HIPAA does not contain a private right of action. So I'll stop there, but I'd say the definition of covered entity is too narrow. The definition of protected health information is not, I would say, accurate enough. And I would say that we don't have a private right of action. Those are three among many limitations of the HIPAA privacy rule. I'm gonna come back to definitions in a second, but very quickly, you mentioned HIPAA safe harbor and you've mentioned the HIPAA privacy rule. I was just hoping that you could give a little bit of an explanation for our listeners that might not know what they are and what the difference between the two of them is. Yeah, so, so the HIPAA privacy rule generally protects protected health information. But then in the middle of the HIPAA privacy rule, there's something called a de-identification safe harbor. And what that safe harbor says is that if a covered entity takes protected health information and removes each and every one of 18 different identifiers, like names, street addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, license plate numbers, and there are many more, and they have no knowledge that the remaining information could be used alone or together with other information to re-identify the individual, then the information is considered officially de-identified. And that's one way information can be de-identified under the privacy rule. And there's actually a second way information can be de-identified, which is that an expert who has appropriate knowledge of and experience with statistical principles for rendering information de-identifiable can use those principles and make an expert determination that the risk is very low, that the individual who's a subject of the information will be re-identified. But the first one's called the safe harbor. The second one is called the expert determination. But my point is, is that we have two ways under the HIPAA privacy rule that information can become what we call de-identified and no longer protected by the privacy rule. But in one of my recent articles that is published in the Duke Law Journal called Not So Private, I point out many ways in which information could be formally de-identified in accordance with the HIPAA privacy rules safe harbor and later re-identified, meaning the individual or the individuals who are the subject of that information could be identified even though the information is no longer protected by the privacy rule. And that is a significant weakness. I really love this conversation because every time I ask you a question, you actually preempt my next question, which is really funny to me. But so I was actually going to bring up your Duke Law Journal article because I'm really interested in this de-identification, re-identification issue. And again, we will be coming back to the other definitions problem in a moment. But for those unaware, organizations of all types will collect patient and consumer data, remove all of these key markers that you referred to, de-identify the data, de-identify in in air quotes, and then they will sell them. Um, They profit off of the sale of aggregated data. This is how a lot of companies make money. And this is how a lot of technology is developed, is utilizing a lot of this data. And not saying that that's not a very just use of data to create better tools for treatment, but it's highly problematic. There are laws that pertain to de-identification standards, as you mentioned, not just within HIPAA, but um, more generally, But why is re-identification so problematic aside from just the issue that de-identified data is no longer covered under HIPAA? I would just say once information is de-identified, it is no longer protected under the HIPAA privacy rule or any state law that might apply, which means anyone can use it, they can disclose it, they can share it, they can sell it, and then the person will be re-identified. And so it's as if there are no privacy or confidentiality protections remaining. 
And you're probably thinking, well, that can't be true. Meaning if information has been truly de-identified in accordance with one of these tests that is set forth in the HIP privacy rule, like the de-identification safe harbor I mentioned, or the expert determination method I mentioned, um, then it can't be re-identifiable. But we are seeing that that is not the case. So, you know, we, we talked about the two methods of de-identifying health information under HIPAA, but I mentioned that there are other state laws like the Texas Medical Records Privacy Act or the California Consumer um, uh, Protection Act, et cetera. Um, and these other state laws contain a number of different standards for de-identifying health information. So, for example, some state laws say something like this. If information is truncated, modified, or redacted, then the information is no longer protected by the statute or the regulation. But the problem is, is that that standard or that law or that regulation won't even say what information has to be removed such that the information is considered to be truncated, modified, or redacted. And the problem is, is that a lot of data custodians, especially at small doctor's offices, small clinics, rural hospitals, those data custodians can be very young with very limited education and or experience in the context of patient or data identification and data uh, de-identification. So they might think, well, I've removed um, Stacey Tavino's photo and I've removed her name and I've removed her street address and I've removed her social security number. So there's nothing else in that data that could be used to re-identify her. But they won't have realized, for example, I have no children, but say you have a woman who has a medical record that says she's had seven prior live births, but you remove all of those other data elements. In a small town, there might only be one woman who has seven children, which means she could be re-identified from, say, an otherwise de-identified abortion record. And so that is why um, this is problematic. So let's circle back on these um, definitions issues because this is something that I'm incredibly passionate and concerned about. And actually the reason that I got really interested in data privacy and cybersecurity back way back when, when I did, which was, you know, years ago, don't wanna date myself. But HIPAA is very narrow. It pertains to a very specific set of information as you mentioned, that is that is collected at a doctor's office or at a covered entity, and that definition of covered entity is very narrow. And it's also, I mean, HIPAA is an old regulation at this point. As you mentioned in the beginning, it's you know it's twenty years old. Technology is way more sophisticated now than it ever has been. Our ability to utilize data or collect data and apply those data is way more sophisticated than we ever could have imagined. I think HIPAA was, you know, one of the leading and most well forethought pieces of legislation that we've seen in the technology world. And definitely at its time, it was the most kind of cutting edge technological thinking um, legislation, but or regulation rather. But what are some examples of like spaces that you're seeing? And I know that you've written a lot about this um, with you know different applications that we utilize, but what are some types of, of data that are being collected that people might not traditionally think of as health data that are then in turn being utilized in a health in a health context? No, you're absolutely right. So um, you know, I was just thinking while you're talking exactly how old HIPAA is. So again, President Clinton signed it into law in August of 1996. This August, so August 2022, it will be 
26 years old. That is more than a quarter of a century old. And so to someone like me, HIPAA seems relatively new because the last 20 years has flown by as I've gone through law school and practice and grad school, et cetera. I feel like that was yesterday. But for someone your age, I mean, this is a very old statute. And the final privacy rule didn't even come out until 2002, which is still, it's still two decades ago, right? So this is an old statute. Um, but I would say the way the HIPAA privacy rule was written, um, it was written at the time we were moving from a largely paper-based medical record system to some forms of electronic medical record systems. But the way it was written was to capture or to protect you know, paper medical records and electronic medical records, meaning very traditional electronic medical records um, that doctors' offices and hospitals use, as well as electronic health claims records systems that health plans, meaning health insurance companies, uses. Uh, but it wasn't written um, in a way that thought about all of the other types of maybe not particularly health-related data could suggest or imply or actually state something about your health. So for example, if I'm online and I'm doing Google searches for diapers, or if I'm doing a Google search for a stroller or um, you know, baby clothes or something like that, um, my search, you might think, is just to buy a product or a service. But someone could figure out from my search, maybe that I'm expecting a baby or that I recently had a baby and therefore that I'm, you know, I'm pregnant or I recently was pregnant. So something as simple as an internet search could actually reveal your health. So um, another example would be if I'm online and doing searches relating to depression or anxiety, et cetera, that's just an internet search, but it might reveal that I have depression or anxiety or that I think I have depression or anxiety. And so the way HIPAA was written, it was really written only to protect what we think of as like formal paper and electronic medical records that are maintained by doctor's offices and hospitals and nursing homes and um, paper and electronic claims records maintained by health insurance companies. But there are so many, I would say, other activities and types of data that can either state something about your health, suggest something about your health, or imply something about your health. And HIPAA simply didn't go far enough there. Yeah, I fully agree. I think it's really interesting to look at, you know, HIPAA in comparison with these new state legislations that are being rolled out because they're actually addressing a lot more modern space that we're moving through where we're utilizing wearables and implantables and all of these different applications that might, you know, footstep tracking. Like who even knows how these data are going to be utilized in creating a profile about somebody or about a demographic of somebody's and and be applied in many different contexts. And we just really don't have a lot of insight into a lot of that. I'm gonna ask a question that might be a little bit unfair, but if you were to rewrite HIPAA or write legislation that is like your dream piece of legislation when it pertains to this narrow kind of space, just pertaining to what could be utilized as health data, what would you like to see? How would you like it written? Yeah, so I would say instead of focusing on uh, protected health information and thinking of that as a traditional paper or electronic medical records, I would do what many of these state pieces of legislation are doing, which is move towards consumer data. Um, because lots of uh, information can again state or suggest or reveal or imply something about your health. So I'd have a definition of consumer data that is more like what we see in the um, California or the Virginia or the Colorado or the Utah Consumer Data Protection Acts that we see um, 
uh, more recently. This is not one of the questions that I sent you and I apologize for springing it on you, but I'm really curious to hear what you think about mitigation or of fallout post breach or remedies for individuals. You mentioned a private right to action, a right of action after your data has been been misused or, or there's been a data breach. I'm not necessarily seeing a whole bunch of paths towards kind of remedying the fallout or mitigating the fallout after data has been exposed. I kind of liken it to the like cut open a feather pillow and shake it out in the wind. And you're never gonna collect all of the feathers again. It's the same thing with once your data gets out there. Do you have thoughts on how we could potentially mitigate the fallout in that situation or, or what remedies we could offer individuals that are impacted by data breaches or misuse of, or miscollection of data? No, I, I think your point about mitigation is a good one. And it's something that a lot of people don't know, but at the very end of the HIPAA privacy rule, there's a set of requirements called the administrative requirements, and there's 10 of them. And they run from 45 CFR 164.530A, um, and they go you know, 10 more or nine more. So there's 10 of them. And one of them in the middle, it actually relates to mitigation. And it says something like this, like a covered entity shall mitigate to the extent possible any known deleterious, you know, effect of the inappropriate use or disclosure of protected health information. And I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's to that point. But a lot of people don't know about that provision. So even though the HIPAA privacy rule does not contain a private right of action currently, although the federal government has recently requested comments regarding how it should do that, um, but although the privacy rule does not contain that private right of action currently, it does require covered entities to mitigate the deleterious effect of any inappropriate use or disclosure of protected health information. Um, and so that's one thing that I wish a lot of these state laws also included. And the reason why I wish those state laws also included that is because many of these state laws do not contain a private right of action. Okay. But I wrote an article um, that was published in the Iowa Law Journal a um, co couple years ago. And um, the title of that article was A Timely Right to Privacy. And there I actually drafted um, a a regulation that would insert into the HIPAA privacy rule a private right of action that I thought would help patients um, remedy their losses, whether they be economic, reputational, financial, social, et cetera, but their losses and or their injuries relating to patient privacy and or health information confidentiality breaches. And I think that's something that would very much help. I know that over the summer, there was a shift in the Supreme Court's definition of, of an injury in so much as it allows for an individual to have standing in federal court if there is a misuse or miscollection or exposure of their data. And it essentially limited what injury was defined as for somebody to have standing. Do you have thoughts on the impact that that will have on things like someone's data gets utilized incorrectly or collected or, or there's a data breach? And we don't necessarily know what the fallout will be immediately, but there is fallout in the future. How should we be thinking about something like that? That's a great question. So remember back from your first year torts class, right? When you talk about principles, like for example, negligence, and we'd say a plaintiff has a duty to plead and prove duty, breach, causation, and then damages, right? And that damages or that actual injury element 
can be somewhat hard in privacy cases. So for example, in a typical battery case, you know, if someone punched me in the nose and I broke my nose and had to go to the doctor and had to pay $10,000 to get my nose fixed, I clearly have the $10,000 from the plastic surgeon's office or the doctor's office, as well as the time I was away from work, as well as my pain and suffering. But you're absolutely right. Think about the, you know, the typical patient privacy or health information confidentiality uh, violation or breach. For example, what if my doctor's office inadvertently puts my medical records online and someone discovers them or I discover them and I complain and they take them down? We're not sure who has seen those records. We're not sure you know, what part of those records they saw. We're not sure for how long they saw those records. We're not sure were they able to keep those records. You know, Those people who saw them may have just been like me, meaning, oh, that's interesting, and they never looked at them again. We are not sure how that information is or might be in the future used or disclosed, whether it might be sold, whether I might not be able to get health insurance or life insurance or disability income insurance in the future. We simply don't know what those damages are. And so I would just say over the last maybe four to five years, there have been lots and lots of patients who sue healthcare providers and healthcare institutions, as well as other businesses that allegedly inappropriately use or disclose their information. And they are able to prove that there was a privacy breach, but then the million dollar question is, do they have damages? Is there an injury? And many courts have not liked the fact that they have not been able to properly identify a concrete injury yet. And a lot of courts don't like that language saying, well, in the future, I might not be able to get disability income insurance. So I would just say this is a very present topic, and it will be interesting to see if we have any additional state laws in this area, whether they will um, give a private right of action and how they will define the injury that must occur before that private right of action can be exercised. In the same vein, but maybe moving a little bit further afield, we're seeing the same kinds of issues with the lack of transparency and insight into algorithms. Data is being utilized in a really broad sense um, to create algorithms that actually make decisions about care, make decisions about coverage, make decisions about a lot of different things in our lives that we actually have no comprehension of. And our approach to privacy thus far has been a consent model. but people don't really understand necessarily the web of technology and data that kind of governs a lot of their lives. How would you kind of frame the issue pertaining to maybe causation or damages in the types of situations that data is being utilized to create an algorithm that could be potentially potentially harmful? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, there's a scholar at the University of Michigan, uh, Nicholson Price, who writes heavily in the area of what we call black box medicine. So this is, a, you know, a wonderful topic for him to discuss. But you're absolutely right. Um, algorithms are used um, very frequently um, and they use our information to predict things about us, to suggest or recommend treatments for us. And we don't know how our data is being used. We don't know the result of that algorithm Um, And then when you have a plaintiff who is suing a defendant, um, we have causation and damages issues there. Um, So I think it's it's an important and interesting issue. And I'm looking forward to, I would say, reading more judicial opinions that analyze these issues in those contexts uh, more deeply. If there were to be a shift in the way data are allowed to be shared, so even, you know, we touched on the de-identification, re-identification element of sharing data and selling data. But if there were to be a shift in how data were or were not allowed to be shared, what would your dream model of data sharing or data resale 
look like? Yeah. So I'd say, for example, again, I mentioned earlier, the HIP privacy rule does regulate the use and disclosure or what you might call the sharing of information, but it doesn't regulate the collection of information. And there, for those of you who may be listening who work in employment law or insurance law, um, you know that, yes, there are some laws like GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, um, that limit discrimination in terms of use of information, but those anti or non-discrimination provisions only apply in certain contexts, for example, employment and health insurance, um, but not, say, life insurance or disability income insurance. So I would say that, you know, in my dream world, I would have non-collection and or collection restriction provisions that currently don't exist in HIPAA and some of these state laws. In my dream world, I would have more robust non-use and non-disclosure provisions, what you would call non-sharing provisions. I would definitely have more robust non-discrimination provisions so that when our information does get out and a patient is re-identified, that information about them can't be used to discriminate against them in a variety of contexts, whether it be employment, health insurance, life insurance, disability income insurance, et cetera. Um, I would incorporate principles of what I call evolving law, something that you very accurately pointed out is that, you know, HIPAA is a very old statute and even the privacy rule now is 20 years old. Um, so law has kind of not evolved um, alongside changes in technology in this area. Um, but some of those are some of the things I would like to see. Yeah, thank you for that insight. I'm really interested to see how some of these laws that we're seeing come out and this increased focus on data privacy and the importance of data privacy um, continues to evolve moving forward. You mentioned so many wonderful scholars that have informed your work or that continue to inform your work. I'd be interested in sharing with the readers some, or the listeners, excuse me, some of the key pieces that you would recommend that they take a look at if they're interested in kind of dipping a toe into the health data privacy world. Well, actually, one of your colleagues at Loyola University Chicago School of Law, Charlotte Scheider, is one of the leading experts in this area, and I follow her very uh, much. I follow her on social media. She has several amazing pieces that are coming out. I think one in the Yale Law and Policy Review and maybe a second in the Maryland Law Review, but she is an outstanding patient privacy, health information, confidentiality, um, consumer data person. And so she's simply outstanding. So anything that Charlotte has written, uh, Nicholas Terry at Indiana University, Robert H. McKinney School of Law is another person. Anything that he's written is outstanding. Mark Rothstein, who's at the University of Louisville Schools of Medicine and Law is absolutely outstanding. Sharona Hoffman, again, anything that these people have written, if you just go to their web pages, they've got all their scholarship and pu publications listed there. They're simply outstanding scholars. I'm a little biased. I have to give a little shout out to Professor Chider. I'm one of her RAs. And so I'm really excited about the Maryland paper because I helped on that a little bit. So, <laughs> but she is quite wonderful. And actually speaking of Professor Chider, she talks a lot about this consent model that we have for data privacy and access to people's data. I touched on a little bit the complexities behind that idea, but how would you maybe change the idea of a consent or opt-in or opt-out model for individuals when it pertains to their health data collection? especially in a world where like you can't go into a doctor's office and not have your information collected on a digital platform at this point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so Charlotte and others and Nick um, also have pointed out that, you know, largely to date, our patient privacy and health information confidentiality statutes and regulations have been based on what we call like a notice and consent, or I'd probably say like notice and authorization standard, which means we tell patients in some type of notice and for example, under the hair privacy rule, that's called the notice of privacy practices. 
but we give patients a long notice of privacy practices that they likely do not read. And even if they read it, if they're not a law student or a law professor who specializes in HIPAA, they're not going to understand it. And we call that notice. And then we don't actually require them again to read it or to understand it. We just require them to acknowledge that they've received it. So I don't know, for example, if any of you ever go through the drive-through at like CVS or Walgreens when you're filling a prescription, but when they hand you your prescription, there'll be a long notice of privacy practices stapled to that prescription. And the funny thing is, is that my health problem is my eyesight. I have very poor eyesight. And so even if I wanted to read that, it's like written in like six point or eight point font. It's not even written in like 12 or 14 point font. So I can't even read the document that is supposed to be notifying me about how they use and disclose and or maybe sell my information and the rights that I have. But again, our, our system is basically based on that notice process. And then we consent or under HIPAA, we use the word authorize. We authorize uses and disclosures of our health information, right? And we can opt into certain things or we can opt out, but that is called the notice and consent model or the notice and authorization model. And I, like many other people have um, a huge problem with it. Um, first of all, most people don't read those notices. And even if they try to read it, they don't fully understand it. They don't understand what a covered entity is doing with your health information, um, how your privacy might be violated, et cetera. And then if they even start to read it, they might not read far enough down to get into the opt-in or the opt-out provisions. Um, they simply don't understand what is happening. And therefore, when they do consent or authorize something, they truly don't know what they're consenting to or what they're authorizing. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really interested in, and I, and Professor Chider does delve into is this idea that, you know, when you approach a doctor and you're asking about a medical procedure, the doctor is the subject matter expert. The doctor is telling you in your specific context, how the treatment that you have options to choose or not choose would be um, functioning within your greater kind of existence. When somebody is handing you um, a consent notification and consent form for your data, there is no subject matter expert there. There is nobody to even kind of, I hate to say it in this way, but dumb it down to the person that that's not their area of expertise. You're absolutely right. That is, you know, that is such a fine point. You're absolutely right. When you go to a doctor and say they're proposing, I don't know, um, ACL repair surgery. If you have a question about like where the scar is going to be, how long the surgery is going to take, how long you're going to be under anesthesia, what the success rate likely will be, that doctor can sit you down in one second and give you all the information that you need. But what is interesting is it's not the doctor who herself gives you the notice of privacy practices. Usually it's the receptionist or the person who is um, just an office staff person in the doctor's office. And that person does have expertise um, in what I call clinic management and maybe in billing and maybe in um, other areas, but they tend not to be data experts or data privacy or health information uh, confidentiality experts. So frequently when I've received a notice of privacy practices, I'll find something in there that is inappropriate or illegal. Like they're saying they can do something with your information that they cannot unless I authorize and I'm not authorizing it. So I'll point it out to them and they'll just say, well, you have to sign it. And I will say, no, I, you know, an authorization to disclose information is voluntary. I don't have to sign it. And in fact, you are prohibited from conditioning my treatment on me signing the authorization form. But that 16 year old or that 21 year old that I'm talking to, they simply, they don't understand HIPAA and they don't understand state law. So they'll just say like, you have to sign it. And that's pretty much all of the, uh, the discussion I get. So you can kind of take your healthcare or leave it. Yeah. And I mean, this is problematic on a million levels, but the idea that we have no choice, but to opt in to utilization of technology is a whole different um, 
can of worms, I guess we could say. Yeah. Stacy, I could talk to you for hours about this, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I want to thank you so much for such an interesting interview. I would love to talk to you again sometime and dive a little bit more deeply into some of these privacy issues. But really, thank you so much for joining us here at the Podvocate. We appreciate that you are willing to take the time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you, so if there's a topic that you'd like the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Shea, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paradis and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Jossen. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.